ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Friday the 29th of December. I'm Kim Landers, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. There are once again concerns that the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza could lead to wider conflict across the region. Israel is warning that it'll act to remove the Iranian-backed militant group Hezbollah from its border with Lebanon if the group's attacks continue. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem. Alison, how often are these exchanges of fire between Israeli forces and Hezbollah fighters happening across the Israel-Lebanon border? Well, they're happening every day, Kim, and particularly in the last week, there's been an escalation in the number of rockets being fired by Hezbollah. We saw about 100 rockets and anti-tank missiles fired earlier this week into Israel. That's the highest number fired by Hezbollah since the war began in Gaza. Israel's been striking back. We've had that air strike earlier this week that killed two Australian brothers. Uh, one of those brothers has been claimed by Hezbollah as a fighter for the militant group. But given this escalation we've seen over the last few days, it certainly sets the scene for what could be another major front in this war. Israel, for its part, says that its troops are on very high readiness for a possible war with Lebanon. And they say that time is running out for the international community to sort this issue out through diplomacy and they'll be ready to sort it out militarily if Hezbollah continues these attacks. And Alison, separately, Israel is also under pressure because of a UN report about conditions in the occupied West Bank. Yeah, this is a report that's been released by the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, otherwise known as OCHA. Uh, It's been looking into the escalating situation in the West Bank since the Hamas 7th of October attack and the war, where we have seen about 300 Palestinians killed uh, in the West Bank by Israel, either by military forces or by settlers. Now, Israel says that some of these people are militants and that they've been targeting militants. But uh, the United Nations says it's been a rapid deterioration of rights in the West Bank. They have urged Israeli authorities to, in their words, end violence against Palestinians there. And we have seen this as I've been travelling throughout the West Bank in the last couple of months, that there have been sometimes near nightly raids in um, in Palestinian areas there. There have been airstrikes, other military tactics. A lot of children have been killed as well. Israel, in its response, has dismissed this report as, I quote, quite ridiculous. It says that the report has belittled the security threats that have been presented in the West Bank. And it said that it's been operating there to, in its words, prohibit terrorism operations. But uh, I think that what we are seeing here is the United Nations trying to put pressure on Israel and even further than that, the international community to pay attention to what they say is a deterioration of human rights in the West Bank under the cover of the war in Gaza. Alison Horn, Security experts are warning Australia needs to work hard to ensure people aren't being radicalised by what's happening in the Middle East. 
As we just heard, two Australian men were killed in an Israeli airstrike in southern Lebanon this week. The militant group Hezbollah has claimed that one of them, Ali Bazi, was one of its fighters. Eliza Getzi reports. The coffins of Australian man Ali Bazi, along with his brother Ibrahim and Ibrahim's Lebanese wife Sharouk, were draped with the yellow flag of the militant Shia group Hezbollah at a military-style funeral on Wednesday in the south of Lebanon. It took place just a few kilometres from the border with Israel, where Hezbollah and the Israeli military have been exchanging fire since the 7th of October. Reuters reports all three were killed by an apparent Israeli airstrike on a home in the southern Lebanese city of Binch Bail. Family members say 27-year-old Ibrahim Buzzi had travelled to Lebanon to accompany his wife back to Sydney to start a new life together. There's no suggestion either of them were involved with Hezbollah. But the group has claimed Ali Bazi was one of their fighters. Greg Barton is a professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University. What that means for Australians of Shia Muslim Lebanese background with family in southern Lebanon is that they may have family members who are actively supporting Hezbollah. They may have many others who are very much opposed to Hezbollah. But if they're visiting those family members, then they're going into an open conflict zone that's very dangerous. The Australian government says it's investigating the claim about the Bazis. The government declared Hezbollah's militant wing a terrorist organisation in 2003. Professor Button compares the group to the Sicilian mafia. If you're living in Lebanon as, as a Lebanese citizen or resident, at one level they operate a kind of protection racket where you know they make you an offer you can't refuse as the mafia line goes. But they also, of course would present themselves as freedom fighters. And some people are persuaded by that. He explains the group is complex. Backed by Iran, it combines a political and military wing with organised crime. Dr Mariam Farida is a lecturer in security studies and terrorism studies at Macquarie University. She worries the group will prey on the anger the Israel-Gaza conflict has ignited in the local Lebanese community to lure new recruits. Online, on the social media, yes, you can already start seeing some of the narratives going on. And it's, it's only a matter of time before someone just uses a tipping point and tries to create chaos and try to create a scenario for which these especially young male members who are really more prone to feel more inclined to join these groups and women as well. So then we lose them to these kind of narratives. The federal government is urging any Australians in Lebanon to leave as soon as they can. Eliza Getsy reporting. Indigenous residents in tiny remote communities who could be isolated for much of the wet season are appealing to the Northern Territory and federal governments to speed up the spending of $100 million that's been set aside to upgrade dilapidated local infrastructure. The two governments insist they're spending the special funding as widely and as quickly as they can, as Jane Barden reports. As the Rupert Gulf Regional Council Mayor, Tony Jack regularly travels around the NT and interstate. But back home in his tiny Gulf of Carpentaria community of Wandigala, he's dismayed by the state of the infrastructure. We've got a major issue with our power system. Big solar setup that sort of needs urgent attention. It's running below 50% at the moment and getting worse. We got fridges now off. Our freezers are off. We got meat. We got to throw out now. And where we stocked up for the wet season, yeah, it's really chaos now. He's disappointed Wandi Gala hasn't got some of the $100 million the federal government committed to NT homelands at the last election. 
The federal government encouraged Indigenous people to leave alcohol and crowded housing behind in towns and go back to their homelands in the 1970s. So even though many of the more than 1,000 such communities across the country are on Aboriginal-owned land, the government's continued to provide some support, particularly in the NT, where about 10,000 people live in 500 homelands. Tony Jack says now many are dilapidated. A movement back to towns is increasing the NT's chronic crime problems. And that's where I, I believe now we've got all the problem with people going into town eh? and they got no choice but to move into town. On Woody Culpaldia homeland in the NT's daily region, artist Martina Parry is worried asbestos is crumbling from old houses. In this weather, wind is blowing right through the housing and we get water going into the inside of the house. You know, all them floorboards are rotting away. A spokeswoman for the Federal Indigenous Australians Minister, Linda Burney, responded with a statement saying that spending of the $100 million on homeland housing, power and water upgrades is well underway, including on the Tiwi Islands, the Catherine region and Central Australia. The NT government is helping organise it. Chief Minister Eva Lawler. Probably is only a drop in the ocean of what's actually needed in our homelands. But my understanding is that that work is underway. They've got a plan around how that $100 million should be spent. Some of it's on housing, some of it's on road, some of it's on essential services. Mayor Tony Jack is worried there isn't enough money to go around and no plan for when it runs out in 2024. I want to send a strong message to our federal members. You know, you were promising that $100 million and the state government and all the homelands like myself and everywhere else, we're still suffering. So they need to do better. Roper Gulf Regional Council Mayor Tony Jack ending Jane Barden's report. Russian authorities have cracked down on celebrities who attended a racy costume party in a Moscow nightclub as the Kremlin continues to pursue an increasingly conservative regime. Some of those at the party have been jailed, fined and publicly shamed. The unusually harsh and swift backlash shocking some of Russia's elite. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins has more. Organisers told guests the theme of the party was almost naked. So that's how many arrived, wearing lingerie, mesh, heavy jewels and one male rapper, nothing but a sock to hide his decency. The backlash was swift and the host of the December 20 celebration, Natsia Ivleva, issued a teary apology. I'm sorry this happened and that it couldn't be controlled. The risk that someone would think of behaving this way was not foreseen and built into the planning of the event. The well-known internet personality is now facing a class action, pursuing millions of dollars from her for moral suffering. Her advertisements with a major Russian telecommunications company appear to have been axed, and now tax authorities have launched a fraud investigation, a common tactic used by the state against Kremlin critics. But the blogger, who wore hundreds of thousands of dollars of jewels to the party, has begged for a second chance from the Russian people. I apologise to everyone, to society and to my guests who unwittingly became participants in everything that was happening in the media. I'm fully aware of my responsibility for what happened. The rapper Vasio, who wore only a sock, has been jailed for 15 days and fined more than 370000 Australian dollars for promoting non-traditional relationships. Vision of his court appearance was made public. 
Some claim this is part of the Kremlin's conservative crackdown. Just months from an election, Vladimir Putin pushed through laws that prohibit LGBTQ activism and continues to talk about traditional family values. But many figures in Russia's state media were critical of the opulence on show during a time of financial hardship and a conflict in Ukraine. Many lost lucrative state entertainment contracts. Singer Philip Kerkorov also apologised publicly for participating. I am an artist only of my country. I am a patriot only of my country. I've never tried to sit on two chairs at once. I didn't leave anywhere and didn't betray. I love only my viewer and listener. I realise the mistake I've made. This unusually swift and harsh backlash from the Kremlin has many high-profile Russians on edge. Isabella Higgins. One of PNG's largest gold mines has reopened after years of negotiations to make sure the government and other local interests obtained a majority share in the operation. Locals are hoping the royalty payments that will come from the new ownership structure for the Porgara mine in Enga province will help improve living conditions. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston reports. It's mid-morning and men, women and children are standing knee-deep in a river near their village. Some are digging into the riverbed to loosen up rocks and others are panning in the hopes of finding gold. We don't have gardens. Our means of survival is through alluvial mining, Porgra landowner Lucas Lara tells me. For many here, their arable land has been replaced by waste dumps and tailings from the enormous open-cut and underground gold mine nearby. In a rather unusual situation, tens of thousands of people live in close proximity to the mine and are hoping to be resettled. The mine opened in 1989 and the population nearby swelled considerably through births as well as migration. During our parents' time, they planted gardens gardens and survived from that, landowner Billop Ailey says. When the company came in, it destroyed our gardening areas but gave us money. That is how we survive. Four years ago, the mine was forced to close when the PNG government chose not to renew the lease of the operator in a bid to own a majority of the mine itself. It walks away from years of bitter negotiations with a 51% equity share, including 10% for landowners, but it's come at a significant cost to those in Porgra who relied on the cash payments. Here's Porgra Women in Business President Elizabeth Iarume. The kids, they didn't have money to go to school, the bus and school fees and even the medical bills as well. With the mine now reopen, landowners say resettlement needs to begin soon, which the government says is a condition of the new mining lease that's been issued at Porgra. It's unclear, though, when or how the massive task of resettlement would take place. Landowners like Anova Aliata say resettlement is urgent. After the dump... It is unsafe, he says. On that side is the dump, that side is the main mine operation. There's mining underground, I'm living in a little island. 
In the meantime, there's mixed views on whether the government's gamble will pay off and how quickly. The government says benefits for landowners are clear and royalty payments will commence when first gold is poured in the first quarter of 2024. The mine's operator, Barrack New Guinea Limited, says it expects the government and landowners to receive more than $7 billion US over the next two decades under the new ownership structure. The government and the operator didn't respond to questions by the time of broadcast. Evelyn Galpay from Pogra Human Rights Watch says there's a long way to go to improving conditions in Pogra. We thought that when a foreign-owned, multi-billion dollar corporate company comes in to extract the valuable minerals from our land, they would bring some good benefits and we would live expensive lifestyles. But that didn't happen, so most of the landowners are living in regret. Many across the country are watching Pogra closely as a key test of whether the government can successfully deliver benefit to landowners in such a resource-driven economy. And after years of challenges, the stakes here are very high. This is Tim Swanston in Pogra reporting for AM. Ballet and the army mightn't seem like they have much in common, but dance is playing an important part in a program that's helping defence veterans deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. As Peter Quattricelli reports, it's part of a research project being run by the Queensland University of Technology in partnership with the Australian Defence Force and the Queensland Ballet. James Wilfred Darby never envisioned swapping his combat boots for ballet shoes. Off the bat, I was very wary of it, very, um, uh, yeah, nervous and all that sort of stuff. Um, but when I came in and started doing the interviews, like, I was still quite standoffish and, oh, what's this about? And, but then after the first lesson and meeting everybody here, I, I was hooked. After being medically discharged from the Army with post-traumatic stress disorder and a bad back, the former combat engineer was looking for a way to put his demons behind him and his best foot forward. I was in my psychologist office and she said, oh, I've got this um, thing for you that you might want to try. She handed me a piece of paper with um, a flyer with um, Rick's program and I picked it up and was having a look at it and I was like, yeah, no, this, this isn't for me. And I, I put it down and then I, was thinking, I kept looking at it and I said, no, I'm going to try new things. This is me stepping forward, trying different things. The 41-year-old is one of a dozen veterans to take part in a 12-week trial, led by researcher Lieutenant Colonel Rick Maher at Queensland Ballet. So the framework of this particular research is to enhance quality of life within those veteran populations. But to do that, we've got to look at not only the psychological aspects, but we've got to look more broadly at the whole range of quality of life issues that impact veteran and veterans' wellbeing. And results from the pilot program have been pleasantly surprising. Well and truly exceeded our expectations, particularly in the psychological domain, where certainly we saw terrific um, improvements or reported improvements amongst all the participants. While it may seem like an unlikely pairing, ballet and the military actually have a lot more in common than you might expect. What we learn in ballet today and all of the, the classical positions, the, the, the now five positions, are all actually based on military drill. The Royal, the cavalry and the, uh, the musketeers, so infantry movement. This is my position, is that everyone who's ever served has already done ballet, but we just call it military drill and parades. Uh, if you think about it, it's wow. synchronised rhythmic music yeah. or movement set to music with a big 
big live band in the background and everyone, uh, you know, sort of marches to a particular rhythm and beat. And, and that process tells a story. In any other forum, that's called dance. For James Wilfred Darby, ballet has made so much of a difference, he's decided to keep doing it permanently. It's actually, it's helped me um, mentally, it's helped me socially. It's just given me overall confidence uh, in my life and I'm just, uh, I feel happy with things. So, yeah, it's been really good. Veteran James Wilfred Darby ending that report from Peter Quattricelli. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.